Today, we have Joy Sharp with us. Joy has been a long time Bridges Out of Poverty, Bridges to Health and Healthcare uh, client, and she's going to share with us some of her experiences today. So welcome, Joy. Welcome, everyone. I hope everybody's having a great day, and I hope it's as sunny where you are as it is in sunny Florida. Um, and we'll go ahead and get started. Um, because I don't have a webcam, I kind of wanted to show you all who you were hearing from. And so if I can get, bam, there I am. Don't look that good today, but hey, that's me. Um, my name is Joy Sharp, as Ruth said. Uh, I have been um, a longtime Bridges, um, uh, I would say, follower uh I've been educated through them and actually listening to Dr. Payne probably about 10 years ago changed my entire life. Um, and so I did the majority of my work in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, working for a FQHC, which is a federally qualified health center who really saw individuals uh, um, and gave them health care regardless of their ability to pay. Um, in 2010, I moved to the hospital sector, and I worked for a Methodist Labonner Hospital, um, kind of working in the trenches in one of the poorest, sickest, and biggest zip codes in Memphis and Shelby County. Um, that was 38109. In November of 2017, I was uh, recruited to Pensacola, Florida to run from hurricanes, no, just to become their director of community health programs. Uh, basically to assess uh, the community in which we sit in and try to figure out some of the things that they need. I want to start this with a disclaimer. This is not, every, the things you're going to see in this PowerPoint or in this webinar here is not saying that you all are not getting or doing good work. Okay, I don't want anybody to think that I saw someone did a, a soup kitchen, I saw a cooking circle. That is amazing work. This is just to make you think on another level. Okay. So if we have been following the work of Dr. Payne, um, we all kind of know what poverty is. Um, we also know in order to defeat something, you have to be able to define it. Okay. So according to the Bridges lens, the definition of poverty um, is the extent to which an individual does without resources. Um, the Bridges lens also gives us a, a couple of uh, nuggets about resources and the hidden rules. The fewer resources you have, the more under-resourced you are. And that's like instability, survival, and poverty. Um, I do an exercise where I pull out Smarties and a board game, and I literally teach providers what their patients actually go through on a daily basis before you give them expensive prescriptions or if you give them a, a long list of groceries that they need to try to buy to be able to curb hypertension when they're living in food deserts. So I kind of change their lens by bringing them down to where the patient is. Uh, stable environments generally equate with middle class. Um, abundant resourced environments are considered wealthy. wealthy. 
Um, there's another activity that Dr. Payne produced. Can you survive living in poverty? Can you survive living in middle class? And can you survive living in wealth? Um, two generations of survival, stable or wealthy living, lead to a collective efficacy, shared understanding of how the world works and the hidden rules that govern it. We're going to talk about hidden rules in a second. Um, hidden rules result from environmental demand and learned experience. Hidden rules exist by religion, what we're going to talk about today, race, region, and socioeconomic class. Um, regardless if we know it or not, we all operate with a set of hidden rules. If an individual depends on random, episodic story structure for memory patterns, lives in an unpredictable environment and has not developed the ability to plan, right? We have to understand that people that are um, have the poverty mindset or that living under resources, the word I like to use, it's hard to plan when you don't know where the next thing is coming from. So if an individual cannot plan, he or she cannot predict. If an individual cannot predict, he or she cannot identify cause and effect. If an individual cannot identify cause and effect, he or she cannot identify consequences. If an individual cannot identify consequences, he or she cannot control impulsivity. If the individual cannot control impulsivity, he or she cannot, he or she has an inclination towards criminal behavior. So right now, sweeping the country is this thing that everybody's talking about, trauma-informed care, and literally looking at a trauma score before they start to um, encounter individuals to see where they sit on the level of trauma. So has this been done before? Has the church been involved in anything so radical as this before? So John Snow um, is the father of epidemiology. So he is, that, that's kind of like the study of disease and how things are, how, how they come about, you know, not just curing high blood pressure, hypertension. What did you uh, what happened in the in the land or in the earth to make you have, have hypertension? Okay, so um, John Snow was convinced of the value of pure water. Um, he analyzed the distribution of the uh, chlorio cases in eighteen, I think forty eight epidemic in relations to the purity of the water supply in London. His hypothesis was that the the disease was spread by contaminated water and was tested by the Broad Street epidemic of 1854. Um, Snow quickly was able to trace the water used and the houses affected by um, the pump on Broad Street and persuaded the parish council to remove the handle. Um, the epidemic stopped, okay? The council did not really believe Snow, so Henry Whitehead set out to repeat Snow's work. Now, Henry Whitehead was a, was a, was a pastor, okay? And so he where John Snow was able to say, okay, these addresses with this water, this is what we need to, you know, deal with. Henry Snow was actually able to talk to the people to find out what times, what dates. It, it's wonderful research, okay? He located 700 deaths within a 250-yard radius and showed that the use of water from the Broad Street pump was strongly correlated with the deaths from this disease. This surprised him because he had actually drunk from the pump himself during the outbreak. So this is a great example of how medicine and epidemiology 
biology and science and public health needed the faith community to actually prove a hypothesis or theory. On this person-centered journey of life, um, we, we see the house with the few people, but we have a collective approach when we go into the churches. Um, my pastor always says everything that you need is in the house, meaning everything that you need is beyond the, is within the four walls of the church. Um, and so the collective impact sits right in the middle of the sanctuary, and sometimes we don't know it. Gary Gunderson, um, he's kind of the father of faith and health. Um, he he wrote a book called um, Deeply Woven Roots, and he argues that congregations are uniquely positioned to feed the roots that bind and sustain community life. Their commitment can make the difference in addressing such problems as violence, substance abuse, housing, nutrition, and public health, also poverty. His book shows why congregations matter, how religious commitments help people transcend the individualism of today's world with singular powers religious persons can bring to their communities and how parishioners can train people in skills for knowledge and building and community building. Um, he actually is the father of the work of what I do. So basically, I run a program called uh, the Faith Health Network, and we teach parishioners how to take care of each other and stay out of the hospital longer. So his his whole um, theory and premises is based on the fact that congregations have uh, amazing strengths. They're great at accompaniment. Okay, we're always with each other. When somebody's going through something, we're right there with them. We're in the trenches with them. They're good at bringing people together. Lots of people. When I had when I was doing work in Memphis, we were trying to pass the the state expanding Medicaid and we send busloads to our capital from churches because they were good at conveying the people connection. They're great at handoffs, warm handoffs and making connections. Great at telling the stories. Okay. Great at listening to the stories. Um, they offer a sanctuary or a safe place for people to just be. Um, and they offer a blessing, of course, prayer and the strength to endure. Hidden rules. So according to um, what every church member should know about poverty, um, this is a book by Bill Elger. I hope I'm saying his name right. And Ruby Payne, if you don't have that, please get it. It opens your eyes to a lot. The question says, why individuals attend church by social class? People in poverty attend church for relief and support and to receive emotional and spiritual rejuvenation relief and relief and support a spirit of hope middle class people for in for sense of well-being to provide positive role models for their children to receive emotional and spiritual rejuvenation and wealth to make connections to provide leadership roles in community and to receive emotional and spiritual rejuvenation so regardless of the social class we all have one common denominator emotional and spiritual rejuvenation. Um, typically, um, the church tries to build communities in impoverished areas, oftentimes through one-time gifts um, that don't help families out of poverty, okay? I'm sorry, my theory wants to talk, um, which don't help families out of poverty. So when we started doing the work in that community in Memphis, Tennessee, 38109, one of the things that we wanted to do was instead of just sitting in a room and deciding what we think people want, 
we needed to bring people to the table, the end users, and ask them what it is that they wanted. Um, and so one of the things I remember um, one of the pastors saying to us was, don't be turkey people. I was like, turkey people? Yes, don't come in and drop a turkey at Thanksgiving and we never see you again. We have to remember that a lot of poverty is about relationships. So they're looking for those relationships that trust, those meaningful relationships. Um, and so we have to make sure that we're doing a stick and stay approach. We're here, whether you show up or not, but we're the one constant. This is what we told them. We're the one constant that will be here every week, every month, however often you do your ministries of health. According to the Association of Religion Data Archives, God, I was so excited when I saw this. I had never heard of this before until I was doing my research for this class. Um, they asked a group of um, about 1,300 uh, pastors, does your congregation have an organized effort, designated person, or committee whose purpose is to coordinate or provide help to members, for example, cooking meals for a new mother or someone just home for the hospital or providing assistance to someone in need. 80% of those pastors said yes, and it equaled out to about 1,064, and the rest, 20%, said no. The other one is, of the regular adult participants, what percent would you say live in a household with income under 25000 a year? Um, and under to 35,000 in 2012. I don't know what that means. I'm sorry. Oh, I see it. So under 25,000 is what you see. And then in the parentheses, that's the one under 35,000. So in between those two. And as you can see, 28% um, um, really said that 50% lived under 35,000 in 2012. This was amazing to me as well. Um, the blue... 50% or more, 36% under 35,000 or between 25 and 35,000. So it really talks about or, or seeks to ex exemplify how many people were living at or below, below the poverty level, level. What I would have liked to see in this is uh, the family size. And that would have give, gave you a, a pretty good picture because if you're one person, depending on where you live, 35,000 is probably good. And so I, I really would have liked to see them dig a little deeper but I wanted to give you some type of data as well as the source to um, to be able to, you know, go out, go out and see it and, and play with it yourself. So it's again, it's the Association of Religion Data Archives. And I, I, I think they'll do another one because I think they do it every seven years. So 2019 may be the year for them to update this data. So what can the church do? Um, I have to talk about my, I have to be transparent. I always thought, and I, I call myself a Bible scholar, I always thought this was in the Bible. Give a man a fish and you can feed him for a day. Teach a man a fish and you can feed him for a lifetime. It's actually not. Um, there is. This is a great Chinese proverb. Um, but this, these are going to be some key takeaways of what the church can do over and above what you're doing. Once again, what you're doing is great work, but I just want to open up your mind to think a different way. Okay. What can the church do? Be a voice to those that don't have one. Proverbs 31 and 8 says, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. If, if I go back to the, the web of trust or the weave of trust and, and the congregational strength, you see that convening and accompaniment was the top two. If you have people that you are, 
are advocating for, whether it be healthcare advocacy, the judicial system, or even the education system, be the voice until they can speak for themselves, all while teaching them the language to communicate their own needs and wants. Okay. A lot of times people don't understand. Um, Dr. Payne talks about the registries of language. And if you're talking to a person in formal registry and their their comprehension is casual registry, half of the time they do not understand what you're saying. Okay. And even if it's a it's a contract that they have to sign, they may not understand the verbiage in consultative language. And so they may need to to come with your strengths to say, hey, I don't understand them. this. And this also talks about sanctuary, giving people a safe place to ask questions. What can the church do again? Educate the young. Empower young children to be successful and get an education. Um, increase access to education can contribute to reducing poverty. Acquire basic skills such as reading, writing. I, I can hear my grandmother saying reading, writing, and arithmetic. <laughs> um, have a documented positive effect on marginalized populations' income. It has a potential to increase um, the rate on return of their income. So a lot of times people are um, put in situations where they cannot plan, they cannot predict, predict because of their educational background or their education level. So if we start young. Once again, another thing across the country is um, brain to five, where a child has to get to like 400,000 words spoken to them before they're five years old that shows that they're, you know, kindergarten ready and that they're getting positive affirmations. So we pour into our Sunday schools and making sure that, you know, no Sunday school is not uh, a regular classroom, but we can make sure that they can read on a better grade level if they're doing Sunday school. So just incorporating certain things into your, your programs that you already do. Um, meet the needs, okay, but teach personal responsibilities. Instead of just giving out a meal, coach people into becoming more responsible. I'll give you a um, a um, uh, an example. Um, and I'm gonna go to the next one. Help them find the resources needed until they become more independent. I don't know what happened to the team, but anyway. Um, so if you have an individual, and I, I, I speak on healthcare a lot because I am a healthcare professional. Um, if two of us work at the same company, let's say we both work for Apple and um, you can be the CEO and I could be the janitor. Okay. Um, we have access to the same type of insurance, right? We can walk into the same doctor's office and um, be um, diagnosed with a chronic disease. Let's say diabetes. Um, you make well over six figures and I may be in that, you know, that slide we were talking about the data with four kids making less than 25,000. So a provider, a healthcare, a doctor has to treat us differently. Many of them will say, no, 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 no. But we have to look at the resources that are available to an individual before we can even actually treat them. The CEO, we can give them a, um, a meal plan and tell them they need to exercise three times a day because they have the resources to do that. But me, on the other hand, as being the janitor, um, you can give me the meal plan, but where I live may be a food desert. OK, so somebody. So all I have is a corner store. So what do you find in corner stores? Things that are you see some vegetables, but they're full of sodium. And one of the things we taught um, in my old job was buy the canned vegetables. OK, rinse them off, freeze them. You kill a lot of the sodium. And so that's helping them to 
be connected to another resource. Now, we also had an individual in that community who was um, $45 short on her bills every month. Every month she was going to a different church to try to get $45 to pay for um, uh, rent, utilities, whatever her deficiency was in. And so we had we sat down and had a conversation with her. Um, she was on a fixed income, yes. Now, we could have kept doing that, letting her, you know, go through the cycle of constantly asking, but we found out that she had a gift inside of her. She liked to make candles. So one of the churches this particular month decided we would buy the stuff for her to get her candle business started, okay? And she was now selling candles to the teachers at the school across the street and making up her own uh, uh, uh deficiency in income. So it's basically helping people move up the, the personal responsibility ladder, making sure that they understand how to practice self-control and they know what really freedom is and values and choices and outcomes and lessons and wisdom so that they can not only be given a fish, but now they know how to fish. Um, know the resources of your community. Uh, help people find the resources needed until they become more independent. I cannot stress that enough. Um, oftentimes, as churches or as um, people that have the ministry of help, um, we want to be all things to all people. Um, we have proved this this thing called navigation, where we talk about making sure people um, get to the right place at the right time for the right reason. And I often have to tell my staff and other navigators across the country that I that I um train, navigation is not the know-all, okay? The church is not the know-all when it comes to community resources, but we should be equipped enough to tell them where they can get it all. And so I suggest finding out who the resources are, finding out where the community um, collaborative meetings are. If they're not any, create them, you know, find out, you know, where they need to go if they want a GED, if you don't have a GED program. So plugging them into the proper places will help them go step by step to get to where we're trying to get them to be independence and um, self-sufficiency. So when we talk about, you know, pulling the resources together, we have to know what the definitions of resources are. So so here they are, the financial, um, being able to purchase the goods and services of the class and sustain it, making sure they um, they know what they qualify for as far as um, um, one of the things we have here in Florida is if you're trying, if you're what we call working poor, I think if you make less than $10 an hour, um, you can go into an educational path that can help you get a, a more skilled, suitable job. And so a lot of times it's a grant-based thing where the, the federal government has given a grant to local grassroots to pay for it. But people may or may not know that, right? Um, the emotional, um, making sure that they know, hey, you can come and we can talk about this. We can talk about um, things that are going on without being judgmental. The mental, um, understanding how to deal with daily life, mentally, emotional, go and spiritual go so much together. Um, I often tell people it's okay to, to, to be a Christian and have a therapist. It's okay, right? Understanding physical health and mobility. If you got someone in your congregation that um, they have a walker and it needs to be updated, seeing if they are available to you know get a new and improved one. Um, what does their support system look like? You know, um, can we do mediations? Do they have family and friends? Um, and I can tell you this all for the since I've been divorced about 10 years, I've always told people I was a single parent. 
I didn't really test that theory until I moved to Florida and the, my only minor child, which is 14, is here with me. I am really a single parent now because I don't have that support system that I had in Memphis. So it was easy to call someone and say, hey, I'm working late. Can you pick JJ up? Now I don't have that. So finding out what their strengths are in the support systems, if they don't have one, teaching individuals how to to create them. You know, they may not even know what a support system does. And a lot of times we think about support, we think about finances, but it's also back to the emotional, the the mental and the spiritual. Um, who are their relationship role models? Who who do they see um, on a bigger scale? Who do they look up to? Uh, we all need mentors. So making sure they understand the value of mentors and the shoulders and then knowledge of the hidden rules. Um, we talked about the, the ones that have something to do with church, but acquiring um, any of the Ruby Payne curriculums, I promise you, you will get the hidden rules. Um, I often tell people the ones that we think about as far as a money, hidden rules as far as money and poverty money is to be spent um, and middle class it's to be saved and then in wealth it's to be uh, invested so understanding that that they know where they fall in hidden rules and understanding um, why they think the way they do based on their hidden rules I had a young lady tell me today we had a patient that was needing some prescription assistance um, she says, well, she has a new iPhone. And I was like, well, that's not really your place to say she doesn't need money to pay for her uh, her medicine, because that could be a relative of her support system, making sure she's on their plan so they know how to contact her and her children or so she can have contact to the outside world, right? What can the church do? The little blue person in the middle is the member. We can see if we have connections already in physical and behavioral health, employment, we got the spirituality part, okay, benefits, community, uh, family, the education, the legal system, housing, and then care management, like health care, making sure they're routed to the, surf, the, 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 the right place. We can wrap all those services around that one person. Not saying that we have to provide it, but we know someone in each sector or we have warm handoffs. We can help move them from one place to the other on the self-sufficiency matrix. Um, I often tell people in order to um, get to where we're trying to go as far as um, poverty and, and different things like that, we need churches who first care enough, okay? Churches who know enough. You know, not knowing all, but knowing where to tell you how to get it all. Um, churches who have the courage to do enough and churches who uh, persevere until the job is done. Any questions? Let's see if I can find those. Uh, Joy, we don't. Thank you. Thank you. We um, So if you have any questions for Joy, please type them into the chat. Um we had somebody that says churches can also help with social determinants of health. Do you want to speak to that at all? Sure. Um, I, um, with your social determinants, um, they can, because we're talking about a lot of them. And I have a slide that's not in this that talks about really the social economics and how 40% of them happen above the waist, right? And then the other 10% is where you live. But yes, churches can help, but they have to make sure that everybody understands them. Um, and 
I'm pulling up this so I can discuss this better. I'm sorry. And poverty is uh, one of the, you know, the social determinants of health. And it's, it's actually the gateway because in order to move from, you know, different neighborhoods, in order to have access to great health care, you have to kind of step outside of what we know the norm is. And so we talked about um, in the PowerPoint, we talked about education. Um, we talked about the social and community context, what churches can do with that as far as resources, education, you know, pushing the agenda a little more and the Sunday school lessons with the children, providing GED classes or being able to navigate individuals to places within your city, your county, your neighborhoods that have educational um, um, programs, economic stability. Um, I had a, someone call me three days ago and they were like, can you come and talk to the individuals in our housing project about uh, savings and 401ks? And I'm like, first, I'm a healthcare professional. I'm not in banking, but have we talked about where they're going to get their next meal before we start talking about budgeting? <laughs> you know, and so it's different things like that. Um, so, yes, you are correct. Churches can help with the social determinants. Um, but here's the thing. As churches, we tell our story really, really well to each other. We have to learn how to tell those stories to the people that are studying social determinants of health, our health departments, our community planners. And that's how we really advocate and be the voice for the individuals that we're serving. Um. Rusty asks if we are uh, familiar with Charity Tracker software, which we are at AHA Process. Charity Tracker is online, a portal that various organizations across the community can use, along with individuals living in poverty, to, to track the resources of the individual um, across organizations. And if you aren't familiar with them, check them out at uh, charitytracker.com or charitytracker.org. Um, Amanda asks, how have you gone about bringing awareness and cultural shifts in how the church understands and responds to poverty in helpful, empowering ways for those who are under-resourced? Okay, you're going to have to repeat that one more time <laughs> so I can make sure I got it. Okay, how have you gone about bringing awareness and cultural shifts in how the church understands and responds to poverty in helpful, empowering ways for those that are under-resourced. Okay. So today at two, no, four o'clock central, we're opening up the doors of the hospital to talk about um, igniting faith um, and health. And so my part is to talk to clergy members about understanding poverty. Okay. Um, you have to, I'm an advocate for this. I believe in this. I, I, I have, and I can be honest, I have been in generational poverty and didn't know it. Okay. And so I, I preach this everywhere I go. Every presentation that I do across the country, any small church with 25 people, I am talking about Bridges work. If you don't understand something, you cannot defeat it and you cannot um, really help people out of it if you don't understand where they are. One of the things that I love about Bridges is we always teach, well, if you can just walk a mile in their shoes, no. We want you to know which lens to use. We want you to be bilingual across the the the, the 
the registries of language. We want you to be bilingual across the hidden rules. And that's what I um, I teach and educate congregations on. So I've seen congregations go from um, having a soup kitchen for the homeless to now doing um, a vulnerability um, index for the homeless coalition so these individuals can be housed. Um, I've seen churches go from a closed closet um, to now being able to show individuals how you dress to go and go to an interview. Um, I've seen a whole lot of different helpful ways, but I haven't been so great at telling the story. Um, but that's basically how we do it. Educate, educate, um, and show them, you know, where they are in the book. And I see someone asked about the name of the book again. It's called What Every Church Member Should Know About Poverty. It talks about different ways. It talks about how uh, congregations view giving and um, and poverty in middle class and in wealth. So understanding where their congregation is. One of the things I, I talk to, you know, the the middle churches, not the mega churches and not the real small churches is when you go to mega churches, they don't have um, bulletins. They don't print them. So if printing cost is a lot, let's move to do something different because nine times out of 10, what do people do with the paper? So being able to show them how to be good with their resources so that they can expand some of the work um, that they're doing um, that they're doing. Um, just this morning, I spoke to a group of pastors here about setting pastoral boundaries. This work was the premise of it. Talking about, you know, understanding who to who to appoint, because we also think in public health that I can't ask you to empower someone if you're living the same way that they are. Okay. So Amanda, Amanda said, our church is getting ready to launch a new ministry that asks healthy couples to share an empty bedroom while we give women who are in crisis time and space to make connect connections with the community. What are some resources that we could give these host couples when matching them with a woman? Okay, this I'm going to take a stab at this, Amanda. Um, this is not my scope, but I, I'm going to take a, a stab at it. Um, resources for, so these women, and Ruth, you tell me what she says. These women are leaving, um, are they leaving um, It just says uh, domestic uh, situations or things like that? Uh, Charlene says they're, they're leaving a crisis. Okay. One of the things that you can do is teach them about uh, trauma-informed care, understanding the level and what trauma does to the brain, what it does to, you know, personalities, um, making sure that they know enough of the woman's story not to, you know, judge her and, and you know, just enough to know why she may act the way she does or why she may make some of the decisions. Um, that's a tough one for me, um, and I, I hate to step into something that I'm not educated enough to talk about. Um, but just making sure that that they are, you're lifting them up. You know, you're making sure that, that you're pouring into that couple as they are. When I say pouring in, I mean spiritually, emotionally, everything is they are welcoming sometimes probably a stranger into their home. Um, and just be careful. I, I can't really offer any anything more educated about that. Thank you. So um, Jennifer says, 
needing help can be stigmatizing and many people in church need help, but they're too stigmatized to bring the need to the church. How do we help churches remove the stigma so people in their congregation will get the help they need? So one of the things that um, that we we have done in the past is we've we've done a blanket um, survey. Nothing, no names, no no anything, and we look at those surveys to see what type of programming that we can bring collectively, so people won't feel like they've been singled out. Okay, so if you do a survey and you ask about, you know marital status, how many people in a household, how much income you have, you know, do you have any health conditions or do you take medications for the following? You know, have you felt alone in the last 25 days? Things like that will pull out programming that you would need. And so it doesn't single a person out, you know. And then a lot of churches are going to things called like cell groups where it's very tight, like it's a very small amount of people that basically, you know, create this bond where trust is like everything. And so trust is is the thing that I think we have to build a little more to help put that stigma down. And then sometimes you guys, and I hate to say this, but this is so true. Sometimes, and when we're talking about trauma-informed, sometimes the church re-traumatizes us. Um, Meaning, um, I'm from the old Baptist church, okay, and thinking about people with testimony services, and we're telling our hearts, and and I'll give a personal story. I went away to a women's convention, and Memphis is very big, and I shared some things in this convention that made it back to my house before I made it to my house, Mm -hmm. so my trust was, was just shattered. And so, you know, being reluctant because somewhere we always talk about this church hurt is not really the church that hurt you. It's some people that, you know, you don't think are going to not judge you or uh, keep your story. So making sure they have that sanctuary, that safe place and that they're not judged. Um, that's and, you know, just keep building trust. Thank you, Joy. Do you have any, a few, um, I think you said a few, but do you have any more of the sample questions uh, that you use on the survey? Sure. I mean, I could send it to you and you can send it. I don't know if you can send it out, but it's we ask um, their, um, of course, their, we ask their age. We don't ask their date of birth. We ask their age. We ask their gender. Um, we ask if they have minor children in the home. If so, how many? Um, we ask if they have any barriers to why they don't receive health care or if they have any barriers to why they're not employed, if they're unemployed. Um, we ask about, of course, financial situation, you know, yearly income. Um, of course, we're a healthcare entity, so we're going to ask those questions. Do you take medicine for hypertension, um, blood glucose levels being high or diabetes, cholesterol? Um, have you felt safe or unsafe in the past 30 days? Uh, what type of insurance do you have um, or do you have insurance? Uh, what type do you have? We know if they say Medicaid or Medicare, nine times out of 10, they're on a fixed income. Um, what keeps you from seeing the doctor? Um, what keeps you from att- attending church regularly if you do not? Um, would, would, if the church had a program to bring people in on a more regular basis, I mean, we, we try to tailor it to the congregation as well. But the first ones I gave you are more blanket. Um, yeah. If you if you don't mind sharing that, we'll get it to everybody. That would be great. I'll send it to you, Ruth. Uh, I'll send it as soon as we hang up. 
Okay, so Eric asked, what are the most relevant relevant areas of life to focus on to impact poverty in a family? Finances, education, all of the above, etc. Yeah. Um, finances, education, you are right, all of the above, but I would say the assessing where they are. Okay. Access assessing where they are, um, and not moving them too too fast. Cause sometimes in the Ministry of Helps, and I can say ouch to this, um, I want you to move at my pace. But we have to understand that. Remember, I showed that slide about the ability not to plan. We have to move at their pace. So just assessing where they are. Education is a big one. Um, of course, economics, but there are so many things that drive economics. Um, I often <laughs> tell people that um, as soon as you figure out one, the other one jumps up. You know, it's, it's kind of like in healthcare, hypertension and high blood pressure go hand in hand. So when you get in to assess what the individuals really are, um, it's really, uh, it's going to, you know, determine. And, and there's no cookie cutter approach. So in household one, it may be education. Um, household two, it may be um, you have the resources, you're just mishandling them. So that would be a budget thing. I mean, so it's not a cookie cutter approach. And I, sometimes I think we mess up because we try to add water and stir to everybody's situation. Yeah. For those of the people on the call that are using Getting Ahead and it Just Getting By World, which allows a program which allows individuals living in poverty to investigate uh, the resources for themselves and divide, decide which resource they would like to improve upon. Most of the times we'll see that it is the emotional resource or the education or um, the relationships that our individuals deal with first before the um, uh, finances. And it's if you aren't familiar with getting ahead, let me know and we can get you some more information, but it's one of the um, best approaches around to help individuals stabilize and become sustainable. We're going to take this one last question. Uh, our church is interclass and intergenerational. How do you address the needs of so many different groups? That's the end of it. Yep. That's the end of it. <laughs> so once again, surveys are good. Um, and, and the program that I run here, one of the programs that I run here, um, pastors give us a liaison and I often tell them, um, give me the nosy person in the church. Give me the one that knows everybody's business. Let me put a confidentiality agreement in front of them and your gossip will stop. So that, that's a joke, but, um, you know, finding sometimes, oftentimes people will tell people in the pews thing before they tell church leadership. So being in tune to who your um, backdoor counselors are, you know, people that have that faith that says, hey, you can come and talk to me about anything and, and, and knowing, you know, that they can share with you without giving a name. You know, we call it HIPAA in healthcare. Um, but once again, knowing the resources. So we have one pastor in Memphis that every first Wednesday of the month, his Bible study is, all, uh, is a resource fair. So he's bringing people in to talk about what they do, right? So he brings people in to talk about uh, affordable housing. He brings people in to talk about um, um, banking. 
you know, and how to start a, a, a small checking or savings account. And so basically what he's doing is he's putting the resources in front of them and he's giving them a, a warm, a warm body and a seat to be able to talk to. And half of the time he doesn't know when he or she, the pastor doesn't know when the members are utilizing these resources, but knowing what the resources are and knowing what the individuals need it's, it has to be some type of blanket survey monkey, something that does not tie back to them so they don't feel alienated. But assessing and, you know, and I don't know how else to say it, but just to uh, make sure that you know what the resources are and start uh, innovatively sending them to, um, you know, bring them to your congregation so that they know how and the hows and whys and the who to, to talk to. Mm-hmm. Um, so you keep getting questions, Joy. You keep getting direct questions. I said that was going to be the last one. But uh, when you work, do you have experience working with small business owners where uh, health care affordability is really large? And how do you how does the church uh, help those small business owners and that whole health care provider piece. Have you worked with that? I have in Memphis. Um, it's it's tricky. Um, you know, taking them to the marketplace. I'm thinking you're talking about the actual business owner, not the individuals that roll up to him. So um, Scott Morris, who is the executive director of the Church Health Center in Memphis, had a program um, that talked about, well, actually, that that dealt with the working poor, people that really couldn't afford insurance. And sometimes entrepreneurs take a hit when they start, right? Um, and so they would pay $30 a month, be seen, have diagnostic tests done, and all this great stuff. One of the things that I would say is in your county, in your city, see if there is a federally qualified um, health center. And tell that individual how to work with them because it's a sliding fee. And so we know as business owners, because I'm a business owner, I can have $10,000 worth of revenue next month. But depending on what I'm offering and to what uh, you know audience, my revenue can fall down to 1500 in a month if we have a bad month. We see that across the church, across business, everywhere. And so making sure that they know that, okay, there are clinics. And it's not so much as a free clinic. There may be a small amount that I have to pay, but they normally don't cap out. They cap out at about $80 a visit. And and that's a little, you know, that's affordable, hopefully, for someone who um, who's a business owner and has a family. Um, And so just making sure that you know what the resources are in your community to be able to navigate those individuals, too. I know y'all are probably tired of hearing me saying resources, but that's what poverty is, the lack of resources, the lack of having resources or knowing or understanding them. Um, One of the things we see in healthcare is, you know, they used to send out these big books and talk about what you are eligible for. (laughs) Um, None of us read those books. Nobody did until it was time to use the service and then we find out, hey, I don't know if I'm even eligible. So then there's a call. So making sure people know what they're eligible for is all about bringing resources full circle. Okay, this is our last one. This is our last one. How do you get the church and the social service to work better together? So, you know, the church sends uh, individuals to social services, nonprofits. How do you get the church 
um, to help those individuals more than to hand them off to the nonprofit. So it's going to have to be a relationship. Okay. And, and there's a, a staircase to relationship, just like the one I showed you about um, moving from one place to another in self-sufficiency. And the first one is talking. So if I, if, if, one of the pastors on the line refers Joy to um, a social services agency and Joy never shows up. How does that pastor know that I never came if we don't have a conversation? Right. So it's going to have to be some some backdoor conversations on the front end to talk about a, a referral service. If you know that you're sending 50 percent of your um congregants to one place let's find out how we can through charity tracker like you know rusty said or wherever enter into something that you know in the beginning so we can know where the breakdown falls because if if there's an individual that's in our congregations that's facing homelessness okay and we send them to an agency that says uh, um they have a place for them this actually happened to me guys about two years ago we had an individual who was in the hospital around Thanksgiving. And this is, the, we're on the end on this story because Ruth said we can't take no more questions. But um, we had an individual that um, was in a hospital and one of the navigators um, went into the room and, and there were some issues about medication. Medication was going to the um, to the primary care doctor, to the FQHC. We had to get the medication because he thought he was going to be discharged on Thanksgiving. We had to fill out all these papers to get the medication to go lock up at the nurse's station. Now, we couldn't have did this without talking to that primary care doctor to telling them, you know, this is what we need to do, you know, without the proper signage because it was healthcare. Um, we go back and we, we lock the medicine up because we didn't want them to be over-medicated, like taking the medicine by mouth as they're giving it to him by IV, right? And so when he's discharged, we can say, how oh, here's your medicine. But we had to access, assess why your medication was going to the PCP instead of the pharmacy. It was a it was a case of HIV. Didn't want anybody to know what was going on. And that's okay. Uh, and so then the navigator comes to me the next day. She said, okay, we put out that fire. Here's the next one. I said, what's the next one? If they discharge him on Thanksgiving, he's going to be put out on like December 1st because he hasn't paid rent in two months. I told her, don't come back with another problem. <laughs> well, this is the day before the holiday. So I get on the phone with social services agencies and I'm like, hey, I know you provide housing for people affected or infected with HIV. Do you have any bids? One lady said, Joy, I have nothing. I said, well, look, put me on your list because I got an individual. In turn, we were able to contact him with his church. I said, well, do, does he have a church? Yeah, it hasn't really been going because he's shameful. Ask him, can we include his pastor in his care? He says, yes. Pastor come. He talks to the pastor about what's going on. The pastor said, hey, we can pay the two months. But remember, Thanksgiving is at the end of November. December 1st is around the corner. So we pay if we pay the two months, which we did, what's going to happen December 1st? And he can't afford to pay that because there's no income coming in. Um, and so by the grace of God, <laughs> the, the lady who I called, she called me. She said, Joe, I got a bed opening December 2nd. I said, okay. So the church had, had agreed to put him in a hotel until December 2nd, you know, if they evicted him on the 1st, which was going to happen. Um, and so the navigator, I said, well, call this individual, tell him what's going on. And she came back with tears in her eyes and she says, Joy, he just not, he's not getting it. And I'm like, what do you mean? She says, he's, he's giving me all these excuses. And so I put my, my cape on and I said, I'll call him. 
Okay. So we're in constant communication with the primary care office because with HIV, he can't really be out in the cold because he's going to come back to the hospital because he's got infection, right? And so we're talking to the primary care office. We've gotten the medicine. You know, we had to have that relationship. We're talking to the pastor. We, we had to have that relationship. And so now it's this new social services agency that we're trying to coach him into understanding that this is the right place for him. So I said, well, you know what? I take all the hard calls. Give it to me. Let me call him. So I call him. You know, I talk to him. Hey, Mr. A, this is Joy Sharp, blah, 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 who I am, what I do. Um, I got your case from, you know, one of my navigators, and she said you had some questions about where, you, you know, we were trying to refer you to. Now, the pastor had no no idea of this conversation. The pastor knew we had found him a bed, right, that we had him somewhere warm to be. And so I had to operate tough love, and I hope this doesn't sound mean, what I'm about to say, but this is what I had to do. He says to me, well, they have a curfew. I have to be in by nine o'clock. And so I say, Mr. H, this is not his name. I says, so you're right. They do have a curfew. I said, but you know, if you're on the streets, there are no curfews. You're just out there. And I don't want you to be there. He said, yes, Miss Joy, I get it. I get it. Thank you for making me think like that. He said, and then I have to prepare my meals with everybody. Okay. And I said, hey, you're right. I said, but Memphis and Shelby County in the next month, you won't be able to get SNAP or food stamp benefits if you don't have a working component. You're not totally disabled because there's no income coming in for disability. So we have to think outside the box. And he says, you know what? I'll call you back. Never called. Refused the housing. So we had to have that conversation with the pastor to say, this is what's going on. He refused what we were able to do. So we need you to help us find him another way or something that's more suitable to him. About six months later, um, I'm walking into the gas station and there he is homeless, broke my heart. But we had to have those open communications to show this decline isn't ready for this yet. And so relationships, you have to be able to talk to people in other sectors. You know, this is not a sandbox approach. Don't play in my sandbox. We all need to spill over in each other's sandbox to be able to help individuals that really need it. Thank you, Joy. Thank you for um, this, your time, your presentation. Um, I put my email here. I'll put it again, Ruth Wyrick, uh, rkwyrick at ahaprocess.com. And if you have any other questions, let me know. If you like this presentation, um, we have our annual conference in Indianapolis, September 22 to 24, and we have a lot of great breakout sessions by practitioners using um, the whole suite of really birth-to-grave solutions that AHA Process provides, and we'd love to have you come. And um, that's it for today. We'll be back in two weeks with another webinar. Enjoy. We thank you. Thank you for your contribution. Ruth, can I say one thing? I see something that I need to ask. I ask a question. I mean, so I think this is um, Renee. I hope Renee is still here. Renee talks about um, one thing we found is that the church is unsure how to the best way to help people come into the church. They just send them to us. How do we get everyone on the same page? Renee, be very clear of what you provide. If it's a meal, let people know, hey, this is what we do. This is all we do. We don't do financial assistance. If it's financial assistance, I often tell churches, 
find out who's actually paying the utilities and who's paying the rents in the communities. Here we have an organization called United Ministries. Churches pay into United Ministries. Like, you know, churches have been paying rent and utilities forever. But go to United Ministries because this is where we, we're going to allocate our time and our dollars to. So being very clear upfront to service providers, what do we provide? This is what we provide. You know, please not don't send anybody outside the scope because we don't provide things that have anything to do with clothing or employment. So being very clear to people what you provide. I'm sorry, Ruth. <laughs> no worries. No worries. Well, thanks, everybody. And we're going to end this call for today. Next week, we will send you the recording of this webinar. So watch for that in your inbox. Have a good day. And I'll talk to each of you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you, Bye-bye. Joy. That was fabulous. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.